This is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. I'm Biddy Martin, president of Amherst College. In this episode, Pat Fitzgerald, class of 82, tells us how his time at Amherst taught him the value of finding common ground with others. Critical thought, reasoned debate, and open communication can make anything possible. Here's Pat. Good afternoon. I'm Pat Fitzgerald from the class of 1982 at Amherst. I was an econ math double major back in the days when econ math double majors were more rare. Although growing up in uh, Brooklyn and living in New York until I was 40, I've spent 20 years in Chicago. And during the COVID crisis, my family and I basically relocated to uh, Southwest Michigan, where we spent weekends the last few years. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. After graduating from Amherst, Pat Fitzgerald went on to receive his JD from Harvard Law School before becoming a federal prosecutor in New York City and Chicago. His career has involved a broad range of high-profile cases, including cases against former mob boss John Gambino and against Osama bin Laden and the people responsible for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Pat has since moved on to private practice with a focus on internal investigations and government enforcement. Pat has also served as a trustee at Amherst College, the University of Illinois, and the School of Hope Foundation in Kenya. I came from uh, Brooklyn in Regis High School in Manhattan, uh, which is a great school. I just remember sitting around the high school guidance counselor's room, reading about Amherst and then reading about Williams and being particularly fascinated about Amherst. Oddly, I recall being struck by the fact that there were 1,500 students at the time and about 1,000 acres and thought it'd be fascinating to leave an urban environment where I took the subway to high school to be on a campus like that. I had actually met Dean Wall. Uh, Ed Wall had come through New York, stopped by Regis High School, which was probably the first time that he did so. And I remember thinking he was a really interesting guy. And I didn't realize that he had a habit at the time of making offers on the spot at times. Otherwise, I probably would have paid more attention to his um, uh, pitch. I was later admitted. And then I went to visit the campus after being admitted, but before making a decision, along with a high school classmate, John Goggins, who would become my roommate at Amherst. We stayed at Morrow in a room with some really interesting students, um, several of whom I think were involved in drama and the arts. And then I recall attending a class, maybe it was math um, 12. I remember going by a party at AD, I think it was the Thursday night tap. And I just remember being struck by the beauty of the campus. Pat's visit to campus sealed the deal. He started as a first year in the fall of 1978. What I recall particularly when I arrived at Amherst was feeling uncomfortable a bit. Being from a blue collar background at a time when I don't recall the expression uh, first gen being in vogue, but I was a first generation college student and felt a bit out of place. But that was also a tremendous learning experience for me. My RA, Chris Tier, who was a quarterback on the football team and a lacrosse player, 
had a shirt where I noticed that the back of the shirt was longer than the front. At first, I thought he had bought a shirt that had a defect in it, and I asked him about it, and he mentioned that it was a Lacoste shirt, but I think I heard the word lacrosse shirt, and came up with my own theory about why lacrosse players would want a shirt that had a longer back than the front, since they were always uh, bent over um, in the face-offs. And then about a week later, it dawned on me when I figured out it was a Lacoste shirt, since I wasn't familiar with the brand. And I think there was a bit of um, that experience uh, in arriving at Amherst. And I have to say, I wasn't the most serious student. I did take school seriously, but I wasn't one to uh, visit office hours for the professor or sit in the front row. But I did enjoy the, uh, the classes I took very much and the professors I saw. Uh, and and thought it was a wonderful experience. I would, you know, I would uh, think about three professors I enjoyed the most uh, during my experience. One was Professor Norton Starr. I was a math major back when there weren't that many math majors, and I had Professor Starr in several classes, and I just thought he was a delightful teacher. He clearly loved math, and he taught it quite well. But I frankly remember running into him randomly on campus several times. And once I got over the sort of shock and intimidation of being one-on-one -on -one with a professor in a social setting, I just found him to be a delight. I recall running into him later at a reunion and having a similar experience with my wife, just chatting to him on the roadside of uh, Route 9 uh, on my way to some event. And just remember how much uh, he loved teaching class and how much of an interest he took in students, even, even the students that didn't seek him out at office hours. And Walter Nicholson was wonderful. He also loved economics and taught it well. And I remember him using the proceeds of the book sales uh, for his textbook uh, to have a party at his house at the end of the semester and sitting in his living room and uh, eating food and uh, eating ice cream was uh, just something that's always stuck in my mind. And uh, lastly, the, the professor that jumps to mind for me is uh, uh, Jeff Waglam. He was a wonderful economics professor and, also a delight to see. I remember something else about my student experience that hit me afterward and Jeff Waglam prompts that memory. I later went on to uh, law school and while in law school uh, taught undergraduate economics uh, or helped teach it uh, part-time and I remember thinking how different that experience was to be at a university as basically a teaching assistant but being the primary contact for students and then thinking back at the level of attention I received as an Amherst student uh, from professors like Norton Starr and Walter Nicholson and Jeff Waglam. The main extracurricular activity I enjoyed at Amherst was uh, rugby. I had never played rugby before. I had seen a game uh, from Memorial Hill and thought it looked fascinating and was sort of talked into uh, playing rugby by a guy named Doug Bishop, who was a few years ahead of me at Amherst. And then um, lots of my friends played rugby and lots of the folks that were playing rugby I didn't know became fast friends. I really enjoyed the rigor of the sport. And one compelling memory, I believe was in 1981. I think it was the fall, but it was a mud game. And we played this game of rugby in the mud, won against Williams, and we took an impromptu photograph after that game. And we're sitting there in our Amherst jerseys covered with mud. I remember a teammate, Jay Cody, holding a book in his hand and just a perfectly poetic moment uh, with his sort of dry humor. And that photograph has stuck with a lot of people.
I remember John Morella from a different class, um, uh, one year ahead of me, I think, and running into him in the federal building in New York when I was a federal prosecutor there. And he was a federal prosecutor in Connecticut. And we talked about that photograph. And I mentioned I had misplaced mine. And he sent me a copy. And I just looked at it the other day. And it brings back so many memories. Some of the folks who were in that photograph are no longer with us. And so it's bittersweet to to see the photograph and be reminded of that loss, but also uh, encouraging to look at the photograph and see the smiles of so many great friends and classmates that brought back that part of the Amherst experience to me. Putting aside my relationship with my own personal family, the four years at Amherst were the best four years of my life. The moments that stick out to me are, are more typical moments. I, I loved going on runs with different friends in the, you know, the Valley area. I think it was senior year when I finally uh, did a run in the area called Amethyst Brook. And I just remember going for a run with friends and climbing a little bit of a, uh, a big hill and going into the woods and coming out and plunging into a cold water creek then running back to town. And I remember with some close friends doing the Marine Corps Marathon in 1981, and that was quite an adventure. By the time I left Amherst, I had formed some incredibly close friends for life. And the chip I may have had on my shoulder about my background, even if I didn't recognize it at the time, went away when I realized that our respective backgrounds didn't matter to our friendships. And that really did impact my life. And those friends are friends for life. Uh, after Amherst, I went on to law school at Harvard and then practiced law for a few years in a private firm in New York, and then uh, became an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, where I worked for 13 years until 2001. And I think I've been lucky enough to work on a, a lot of different matters. And the two that I think stick with me the most uh, are quite different. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. Two American embassies blown up in East Africa, minutes apart. Who did it? Why? And why now? Uh, as a prosecutor, I got to work on the case involving the August 7th, 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Kenya, which really brought some attention to Al-Qaeda uh, prior to 9-11. And those Al-Qaeda bombings killed 224 people total. There were 213 people killed in Kenya and 11 people killed in Tanzania. It was just awful. Because I had been working on an investigation of Al-Qaeda beforehand, I was part of a team that went to Africa shortly after the bombings, and I was literally there with the building smoldering and people still being pulled out. Everybody outside. Everybody outside. I remember remarkably many days in, a woman was pulled out alive by a rescue team, which was quite dramatic. And to be part of that case for several years as it went to trial, eventually in the U.S., uh, was remarkable. These acts of terrorist violence are abhorrent. They are inhuman. We will use all the means at our disposal to bring those responsible to justice, no matter what or how long it takes. 
we thought when we were there that the case would be tried in local Kenyan courts because most of the victims were Kenyan nationals. And while we were there uh, during a dinner where the FBI director at the time, Louis Free, came to thank the American and Kenyan investigators, he interrupted the dinner to tell us that he had just spoken to President Clinton and a bombing had occurred of a suspected plant in the Sudan and of a training camp in Afghanistan. Good afternoon. Today, I ordered our armed forces to strike at terrorist-related facilities in Afghanistan and Sudan because of the imminent threat they presented to our national security. And that was in response to the bombing. The room was pretty still, and people were pretty taken aback to realize they were working on a case that not only involved such a great tragedy, but it actually caused military action to be taken. And following that, a decision was made to bring the case to trial in the United States, which we did in 2001. And the thing I, I just always remember was that the victims in Kenya were involved in the lawsuit. We listed all the victims by alphabetical order without regard to nationality in the indictment. And then with the assistance of the State Department and funds on a regular basis, family members of uh, victims in, in Kenya were flown to watch portions of the trial which went for seven months. You know, if I had been in the building that day and my father had not, uh, he would do exactly what we are doing today. I think our presence is most important and it makes sure that their memories are not lost and the lives and memories of others are not lost. And when the verdict finally happened and the defendants were pronounced guilty, we walked into a room with mostly Kenyan victims and that experience that uh, to see them feel some measure of justice after a tragedy is something I'll never forget. I moved from New York to Chicago in September of 2001 when 9-11 happened, and that was obviously a pivotal event in, uh, in history. And I worked as the U.S. Attorney in Chicago for 11 years and then retired from the government, and I've been working for the last eight years plus at a private firm, Skadden Arps in Chicago. Since Pat moved into private practice, he's continued to work on a variety of high-profile cases, including the investigation into sexual abuse by gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser at Michigan State University. But to Pat, one case sticks with him the most. And a second memory that sticks in my mind is from the opposite side of the courtroom, so to speak, and in private practice to work on a pro bono case involving a man who was um, convicted in 1961 at the age of 14, of murdering his schoolteacher in the middle of the day in a pretty violent assault that was carried out um, in, in the daytime and was covered extensively in the newspapers with the mainstream press portraying uh, the defendant as being a very violent criminal and the press in the African-American community portraying it as a miscarriage of justice. Uh, was quite interesting. I was invited to be part of a team that addressed that conviction and became convinced very quickly that the defendant was wrongfully convicted and worked with a team to see his conviction vacated in 2019 and was standing in the courtroom with a number of other attorneys when he was also declared innocent uh, shortly thereafter. The distinction being that on the one hand, 
it was wonderful to see his conviction overturned because of many different errors. But the follow-up proceeding where the judge actually declared him innocent uh, and entitled to compensation vindicated that he, in fact, had not committed the crime, and there had been a terrible tragedy of justice. Outside of his legal practice, Pat has spent much of his time in support of education. During the time in private practice, I've also worked on several educational boards. Um, most prominently, I worked on the uh, Amherst College Board of Trustees, where I was happy to serve, and also on the University of Illinois Board of Trustees, and I remain on the board of the School of Hope Foundation, which sponsors a high school in Nairobi, Kenya. St. Aloysius Gonzaga Secondary School was founded in 2004 with the goal of providing education to orphans and other children in need in Kabera, a neighborhood in Nairobi. Since its founding, the school has graduated more than 650 students, half of whom have gone on to complete a college education. People come here from the countryside to advance in their lives. What we're trying to do is we're trying to reach out to people who got stuck. And I became familiar with that school, both because I was paying attention to things in Kenya, but also saw that the school was founded by people associated with the Jesuits. And having been given a free education during my high school days by a Jesuit high school in New York called Regis, I felt that tug there. And so I just have always been a big believer in the opportunity education provides to give people a level playing field. And that has certainly benefited my life. So that's a cause that appeals to me. I think what I learned from Amherst was I went to Amherst not really knowing how to interact with people who weren't very similar to me, who weren't from you know New York City, uh, where I considered people not from Brooklyn different, um, and who didn't go to you know an all-boys Catholic high school like I did. And while my experiences were certainly not as ethically diverse as they should have been, I learned a lot about people coming from different backgrounds, um, some folks being first-generation college and some folks being um, several generations um, before at Amherst as a legacy and from different geographies and learning to realize that uh, uh, there was a lot in common, um, more than it was different. And I made a lot of friendships that I treasure for uh, the current folks I'm in touch with now. And when I look back on my student days, I don't think I have any criticisms for the faculty about what they could do better. I think I could give constructive criticism to myself about how much more I could have drawn out of the education if I had been more of an active participant and interacted with faculty more outside the classroom. But I think Amherst creates an atmosphere where there's tremendous opportunities for students who want to get as much as they can out of their education. I felt that I was thought to think rigorously and that Amherst education gave you great confidence that you could take on challenges going forward. I think from my perspective, from being a student and then an alum and then a trustee, Amherst has continued to preserve the strength of a liberal arts education and a school where the professors 
while serious about their research, are there principally to teach? I think the clear difference between Amherst when I went to school and Amherst now has been a transformational approach to becoming more diverse. And I think that's obviously much for the better. It hasn't come without growing pains and there won't be more growing pains, but I think the change in Amherst uh, has been fundamental. And I think Amherst has led the way in showing people that this can be done, not easily, but it can be done Having watched the events of January 6th and a second impeachment hearing, which was completely unprecedented, I think we're at a juncture in time when it's really, really pressing that we return to a fact-based world where people can agree to disagree in a way that does not involve vilifying each other, but that does not seem like an easy path uh, at this point. My own personal view is that we need to reach a point where you find more in common than have one side win over the other. But that is easier said than done. Perhaps that desire to find common ground through open conversation comes from Pat's experiences at Amherst. Surprisingly, Pat found that some of his most profound learning experiences have come in the most informal settings. The other things that stood out to me from my Amherst days was just literally sitting on a couch talking to other folks and just talking about things going on in the world. I remember when I was in high school, a family friend had told me that you may learn more out of the classroom in college than you would in the classroom. And I thought that was ridiculous. And I thought, how can you learn more from students than you would from a professor? And it was only years later I thought back to some of the days I would be sitting on a couch on the second floor. Uh, it was then called Deke, is now called Plimpton House. And some of the conversations you would have with classmates that were impromptu just started up or you dropped in on them. And I think back to those days uh, and realized that that's exactly what my family friend and counselor was telling me. And learning to engage with your friends, but think about different issues of the day. Uh, that was a, uh, a great experience. To me, the value of a liberal arts education, and particularly one at Amherst, was learning to think across disciplines and not put things in a bucket that this is math, this is science, this is English and writing, and, and this is history, and realizing they all fold over each other together. And I think that a liberal arts education teaches students to think rigorously and logically and to speak and write clearly, but at the same time tries to educate young students like I once was to be open to looking at different issues through different lenses and not just in one box. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. A production of Amherst College in association with Cadence 13, narrated by me, Jeffrey Wright. Executive produced by Biddy Martin, Ian Mont, and Rebecca Kennedy. Produced by Catherine Duke, Bette Schumacher, and Sandy Janelius. Written, directed, edited, and mastered by Ian Mont. Technical and equipment support by Sean Cherry. Creative consultation by Catherine Duke, Carly Nardowitz, Connolly Stokes Buckles, and Molly Whalen. Music from Source Audio and Extreme Music. Archival support from Michael Kelly. <laughs>